מרגישים קיץ באוויר. כבר עשרים שנה. מרגישים קיץ באוויר. כל רמה. כל רמה מאה ושתיים שלוש. מרגישים קיץ באוויר. Shalom and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamed in Highland Park, New Jersey, the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Shemit. Joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, recovered from COVID-19. Rabbi Barry Chesler on his way to Israel as we speak. <laughs> no, we're recording this earlier in the week because later in the week, Rabbi Barry Chesler will be in Israel. What are you going to be doing in Israel, Rabbi Chesler? Uh, it's a... Uh... A professional development conference sponsored by Legacy Heritage. Um, so putting together a program to bring back to my school with a colleague. All, all you teachers, you get, you get so much professional development. It's amazing. <laughs> well, it's necessary. It, it's the teacher's equivalent to the sabbatical, which some of you can relate to. <laughs> but you should, tell people that, you should tell people that we're, we're recording this on... Special special day in American life. Yomat Smoot. American Yomat Smoot. Independence yeah. Day, July the 4th. Happy Independence Day and Independence Week for those uh, uh, Americans celebrating in the diaspora today and tomorrow. <laughs> uh, we, we, we also want to just uh, say an, a really fond hello to all of our friends at Machane Ramah in the Berkshires. They got off to I guess a great start, except for the fact that half the camp is sick with COVID, at least the kitchen staff, right? But we wish everyone there, Rafua Shlema, make sure uh, that you take good care of yourself because we have such an amazing Parsha to talk about. And we want to enjoy the next, I don't know, 30 minutes with you talking about Parshat Chukat, really uh, one of the most interesting Parshiot. A lot of uh, turning points in this Parsha. But, but before we get into some of the more dramatic moments in the Parsha, we've got to talk about the strange set of laws, really one law at the beginning, Chukat HaTorah. It's called Chukat HaTorah, the, I guess, what is often interpreted as the, the irrational law, but maybe according to some, it's well, not. Non-rational would be better. Inexplicable. Let's say inexplicable. inexplainable. Okay. So this is the red, we call it the red heifer, the red cow. It's a the rust colored cow. And, and what has to happen with this cow? And what is the purpose of this cow? And can we, can we actually get some meaning out of what is uh, heretofore very difficult to explain? So Barry, I want to turn to you first. Talk about the red cow. Okay, so my teacher, David Marcus, pointed out that it was probably a brown cow, not a red cow, because <laughs> biblical Hebrew has no word for brown. And so Adon is used for both red and brown. That was his rust idea in class. Rust, rust, rust colored cow. So it gives it a little more, it makes it a little more explicable, because when we think of Clifford the Red Dog, 
that bright red color, this is not what our cow is looking like. It's just a uniform color. And it is used for purification from contact with the dead. So the greatest form of impurity in the Bible is contact with the dead, and you have to undergo a, a purification rite. And the way the Torah describes it in chapter 19 is this red heifer, which has never been used for work, is going to be sacrificed and burnt completely. And the ashes are going to be mixed with water and sprinkled on people that come into contact with the dead. And the feature that makes it for the modern year perhaps a uh, bizarre is that everyone who's involved in the preparation of the red heifer is going to become impure for a certain period of time, even though the potion that's going to be created from it is the potion that purifies. So it's a kind of a paradox and one that was noted well by the rabbis thousands of years ago. And in the Midrash, at least, it's one of those things that's not explainable and it's just something that we do because God commands it. So I, I would just, um, you know, I just want to say a word about developing this this concept that avi avot hatuma is is the dead body, right? It's it's halal cherev o bemate o adam o It's it's somebody who's been killed violently or died naturally, um, a bone or a grave, and the uh, the the powerfully decentering de the powerfully. Uh, you know, it, it takes you out of normal life. Um, experience of touching a dead body or being in the presence of a dead body, I, I don't think we can overstate like the spiritual effects of that. Um, we, you know, we use these words pure and impure and there's a kind of a natural association with dirty and clean, but I don't think that this is very helpful for understanding biblical concepts of purity and impurity. I think it's really much more about order and disorder. There's a normal life. And in normal life, you know, your body's intact and you go through the world. And then there are things happen. Sometimes they're really bad and sometimes they're really good, like childbirth. Um, but because they are decentering and they take you out of normalcy, there has to be, they, they, they pr produce a, something which we call tumah or impurity. Once again, it doesn't necessarily mean bad. Having a, having a baby is a wonderful thing, but it does produce tumah because it is the opening up of a body and, and there's lots of blood. And so similarly with, with touching a dead body, this is, you know, obviously going to be balanced in a negative way. Um, it just takes you out of your normal life. And there's a ritual that has to happen. In fact, it is the paradigm of the avot hatuma. It is the ultimate source of impurity. Um, and it needs this major, major ritual. What you said about the brown cow, the, the colors, colors in, in ancient languages are, you know, famously complicated. First of all, we, we, you know, they're hard, they're hard enough to describe in modern languages, but uh, it's kind of a yellow, blue, green, you know, but um, what you said about brown is totally sensible with one asterisk, which is that the, the color of this cow has to connote blood. I mean, it has to, it, it resonates with um, a sense of, of, you know, death or violent death. And so there's a way in which the, the blood colored cow comes along and takes the person who's been touched by blood and reorients them to a healthy, you know, livable uh, relation to society. I think I think I just want to pick up on on your point because uh, you know I, I often use the 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 kind of metaphor of being in a in a zone. You when you are in contact with the dead, and 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 this gets quite elaborate within Jewish law. That is to say, not only 
the touching of a dead body, but you know, being in an enclosed space with a dead body, um, it it's it really creates a different zone and the transformation or the transition that you must go through both physically and I think psychologically from one zone, the zone of the dead to the zone of living requires a ritual. And, and we, we have an in, intuitive sense of the need of some kind of symbolic form, ritual transition ceremony uh, when we move from different states. Look, I, you just recovered from, from, you know, COVID, right? So, so look, you didn't, you didn't get the waters of the, red heifers spilled on you or or spread. no i did that was the <laughs> right so but if you are living in antiquity okay look there are transition rituals for for lesser impurities for the people who have tarat or the people who have who are outside the camp and you meant you 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 referred to the parturient woman okay well she these are re-entry uh rituals and and they require this kind of um you know, anointing. Well, it's not anointing, but it's the sprinkling. Yeah, sprinkling. The the waters are are. I, I like to think of it as you take the red cow, the 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 rust colored, blood colored cow. You burn it up with hyssop and red crimson. So you get a concentrated, you know, and you grind up the the ashes. It's like concentrated, potent, potion thing, lustrous detergent, detergent in the sense, in the, in the technical biblical sense of it will take away something from you. And that, that concentrated ash potion functions as the, the way, the transition lustrous lotion to get you from one state to the other. Now, Barry referred earlier to to the rabbis you know, and Ellie, you did as well. Like we have a we have a convention of saying that there are these you know, two classes of laws: chukim and mishpatim. And mishpatim are rational, easily explicable stuff: don't steal, don't kill. You know, uh, you know, any, any of the economic legislation. It's, it's not hard to understand the point of them. And then there are chukim. You know, God just doesn't like pig. Whatever. God just doesn't like lobster. Uh, there's no there's no obvious explanation explanation for why this and not that they're hukim and you follow them because they're hukim and so the the zot hukata Torah this is the ultimate hook of the Torah this is the ultimate you know of the most inexplicable things um, the 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 sages I feel like are broadly speaking um, rational folks they like explanation they like being able to identify you know Maimonides who who certainly is in this category Maimonides says you know Okay, I, I can't figure out the reasons for every commandment. I got most of them. Um, there are a few that I don't have. There are a few that are just have some arbitrary details. But there has to be a reason for everything. Otherwise, God is just an arbitrary despot. So there's got to be some reason, even if it may be beyond human can. But the, So the rabbis, as, as Barry alluded to this midrash, the, the uh, idol worshiper comes into the Beha midrash and asks Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai, uh, you know, what's up with the what's up with the red heifer? And he says, well, listen, you know, he gives him some sort of a folk explanation. And the students say, uh, well, that that worked for the idol worshiper whom you 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 shoved him off with a broken reed. But what about us? Like, yeah. how about giving us an explanation for this inexplicable thing? And and he says, there's no explanations. The king said so. Um, and it's it's not for us to, to question what it is. It's just for us to obey. And obedience is certainly a part of the repertoire of religion. 
And, you know, it leaves one with a sense, and I, I consider this a positive thing, although throughout the history of Judaism, maybe it's not always so positive. It leaves us with a sense of mystery. I want my religion to have some mystery to it. And, and though I think that the rat, like I said, Maimonides and the sages, they, they, they prefer something that they can get their arms around. I'm also like, this appeals to me in the sense of uh, the stuff that I can understand. Let's move on to, to, we have some very interesting things going on in this Parsha. Moses uh, will emerge without his siblings. The first report of death in the Parsha is for Moses' big sister. It says uh, they arrived in the uh, the wilderness of Tzin in the first month, Bachodesh Arishon, they dwelled in Kadesh, Miriam. Miriam dies there, and she's buried there. And so I almost want to read that verse with a, with a big pause before the next verse. The next verse is, There is no water for the people. But can we just take a moment to mourn with Moses on Miriam and, and what that death must have meant to her? Um, and, and, it meant to her a lot. It, it was everything for her. It changed everything in her life. All right. Well, <laughs> what it must have been. Well, it's we instructive. To... One of the explanations for Moses' his behavior in the episode of The Rock is that he is mourning his sister, and he's too preoccupied with his personal grief and not attending to the needs of the community. And that, that episode is going to follow on this, uh, the, the, the hitting of The Rock. But... Um, can we just say a little word about Miriam? You know, is she... Well, what, I think it's a great question, but the text doesn't give us a lot here because the last time we saw Miriam, she was recovering from, I guess, the biblical COVID, Sarat, leprosy, which she had been afflicted with because she and Aaron were speaking inappropriately about Moshe. And then, if I remember correctly, the last time before that we hear of her is at the Song of the Sea. Right. Right? So she looms large in our consciousness, but not so much in the text, which is interesting in and of itself. So, okay. And then, I, I would, I would, go back um, to the beginning. Or just go. I'm sorry, Jeremy. Go. No, I, I would just, I feel like with respect to Miriam, I, I mean, I'm, I, I happen to, uh, because Balak was my bar mitzvah portion, so I remember the Hatzara from Micha. And I remember even as a kid, sort of noting the fact that, that Micha says, you know, God, you sent us great leaders, Moshe Veharonu Miriam. And, and here you have this biblical prophet going out of his way to mention the, the triumvirate of the siblings. And not, not what I thought as a 13-year-old, but what I think now is that there must be, and our text now is probably in this, there must have been in biblical Israel a tradition of the big three, you know, and um, just like a basketball team, like, uh, you know, LeBron and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosch, you got to have the big three if you're going to win a championship. And and so I feel like there must have been in biblical Israel a way of looking at them. And and not every text in the Torah necessarily espouses that, but but this one does. And so to me, it's like, yeah, she deserves. She deserves it. And she's also instrumental in the early part of the story, which is without Miriam, there wouldn't be a story. There would be no Moshe, period. And, and um, you know, let's not, re you know, forget that she 
was the one who was spying on him when his, they put him in a basket and then floated him in the Nile. And she was the one that, you know, made the uh, assist. <laughs> she got she got uh, the daughter of Pharaoh to uh, have the the boy uh, nursed by his own mother. So uh, Miriam is instrumental in this. Part. And, and I think, so, yeah, go ahead. Well, we might note is that Miriam is buried but not mourned in the text. Yeah. And maybe that's the problem that she had a, she was a figure obviously in the family of Moshe Nairo, but also in B'nai Yisrael and other, she gets a death notice, but nothing else. When Aaron is going to die later in the Parsha, the people are going to mourn for 30 days. So I think, I think the role that she plays at this, at the scene also is significant. It's certainly become, you know, much more significant since Debbie Friedman wrote the song, uh, you know, and the women dancing with their timbrels. But but um, I, I'm, I'm reading a book on the history of music in, in which the, um, the role of women in particular in music, uh, in, in the deep, deep history of music uh, is very, very significant. And that, and that she, by, by music and dance, is also playing a very, very important role in the spiritual life of the people that is distinct from the role that her brother Aaron is going to, it plays, uh, which is the, the priesthood, which is uh, at least according to one scholar, um, typified by silence. So she's, she's really the, the um, opposite, I guess, because of the musical life. Let's, so, and the rabbis link the two parts, you know, the, the death of Miriam and the loss of water. It says, There was no water for the community. And so they, they, I don't think they invented, I mean, they have a tradition, they summon a tradition of Miriam's well. Meta Miriam, and when Miriam dies, it's Nifsak Haber, the well stopped. And there was a, a, a well that accompanied Israel on its way from Egypt. This was Miriam's well, and once she died, there's no water. And that is, according to the Midrash, what uh, prompts their complaint. And there's that word, they ganged up, they congregated on Moses and Aaron. They fight with Moshe. And Vayomru, they say to him, and, and this is, you gotta love this. Would that we have died the way that our brothers died. Why did you bring us, why did you bring the congregation of God to this, this miserable wilderness? I put the miserable in brackets. To die there. Why did you take us out of Egypt? To bring us to this terrible place. Not a place of seed and figs and grapes and pomegranates. There's no water. Okay, so so again, Moses and Aaron, they, they fall on their faces. But... They, who do we talk about first? The people, <laughs> this people. Well, so it's amazing to me 
how often we read the story and still notice details that uh, escaped us. So one of the things that struck me is the line that says that Moses took the staff that God commanded him to take. And, you know, the staff plays a big role. Um, some of the interpreters say that uh, it was Moses hitting the rock that precipitated the disaster. But what I was thinking about the other day in relation to this story, this story is going to generate names for the place and because of the behavior of the Israelites. But we often think of this as Moses and the rock, as if the Israelites are kind of secondary. And, you know, I, I wonder how this story actually loomed in the consciousness of the people. It wasn't a story about, oh, this is a place where Moses lost and it was punished. But this is a place where we rebelled against God. But what makes this so different from the other places where the people rebel, and not every place is going to get a name attached to it, as this story does. It's, it's, maybe it's because that that up until this point, uh, there have been the other major rebellions, but but they've gone on. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that this story is taking place somewhat later in the in the biblical track. So, well, even Ezra says it's the last year. It's the last year. So, fortieth year. So they've gone. Since the first uh, rebellions about water, they've gone a, quite a significant time with by having all of their needs met. They have the mana, and they they have essentially had water, uh, you know, provided for them. Look, I you know we we can go into the midrashic world, but but you know maybe the midrash is onto something and saying that you know the this event Miriam's death coincided with this crisis, and and. Oh. You know they they've been sustained for this length of time, and now they're not. I mean, look, yeah. you know, we 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 turn on a faucet and we have water. Okay, you know, we we go crazy when the electricity goes out. I mean, we can't. You know, we literally can't function uh, when you know f with a loss of electricity for uh, you know a period of more than an hour. I mean, it can drive people crazy. I know. You know. You know, in Ottawa, there was a big. Uh, outage for days and we've had experiences of outages for days where okay so you, you it's fun the first day with with flashlights you know by the second day you're like you know what's going on here and so you know we we take it for granted that we have these kinds of things to sustain us um and and the water water is life life and death in the in the desert i don't blame the israelites for for complaining i do blame them for the the sharpness and the sarcasm of it. I, I just, you know, well, that, that part is, that part is, you know, really integral to the story because to the extent that this, that the story, and I, and I, I certainly think it does have, you know, have great, not just this one episode, but the sweep of the journey through the desert that is safer by Midbar, you know, um, I think that it has something important, spiritual and moral to, to speak to, you know, the Jewish people or humanity. So listen, journeys are long. They are hard. Moshe promises you a future. And at, at any given spot on the journey in the present, you go, you told me milk and honey. Yeah. This stinks. This isn't milk and honey. I haven't seen, you know, so the, the you know, this, uh, I believe I was promised a luxury resort. So this is, this is not, this did not match the, uh, this did not match the description on, on Airbnb. So the, the people's impatience, I think is a, uh, a like a, a deep human story that people will complain 
they will they will want the arrival um, at any point on the journey. They will they will think they deserve to arrive already. And so having the strength to, to deal through that um, is is an important part of the story. I love what you said, Barry, about the displacement. Like no real mourning for Miriam, no real emotional mourning. Um, Moses was therefore ill-equipped, and the people. Let's you know put ourselves in the midrashic context of the of her death brings the absence of water. They're they're also you know maybe they're intensified in, in thinking, oh thanks to Miriam we were taken care of. But in any event, they're they're not focused on her. They're focused on themselves, and they say this they say this silly thing. Um, I would just point out, you know, that back in Exodus, in in uh, in Parsha B'Shalach, you also have a hitting the rock episode, and that's at the beginning of the journey through the desert, uh, and it is is also called Memeriva, the waters of, of contention and strife, but that is basically portrayed as uh, a totally good episode. People are in a bad spot. God totally comes through for them. Gives Moses a trick. Moses takes care of it, and it though it is called the waters of, of contention, it, it's got a very you know generally positive s- statement about God's um, uh, providential generosity. You know, here's the is, it's almost the exact same story. In in fact, I think like probably with a modern eye, you have to read them as two tellings of a single episode, not not two different episodes separated by forty years. Uh, if it is two episodes then Moses is totally treated unfairly. If it's two episodes, Moses is just doing the thing that he did before, which worked so well, and now he's in trouble for it. That doesn't seem fair. Um, but I, I think it probably is like two versions of a single episode, one of which is about God's, God's grace and providence, and one of which is about the people's just impatience, anger, and, and inability to, to, to stand up to their own adversity. So, so I, what, what I would add here is that if we accept Ibn Ezra's chronology that this is the 40th year, we have an interesting kind of dissonance because the people know that they're going to die in the wilderness. It's the last year. On the other hand, we have Moses kind of champing at the bit because the promised land is now within his reach. And we can understand the people's complaining because not only do they know they're going to die in the wilderness, but now they're not having such a good vacation. And the other thing that I would say is in light of the beginning of the story is that in a certain sense, Miriam, we forget sometimes is the oldest of the three siblings and her brothers cannot function or live without her. And their death is going to come from Miriam's death as well, because at least one version of the story is that Aaron and Moses are not going to be able to enter the land of Israel because of this event. And, you know, Aaron himself is going to die a little bit later in the Parsha. And it's kind of striking that Miriam, I think, who gets the least press of the three siblings, in some ways was the most important because her brothers depended upon her in a way that isn't always recognized when we read the story. Can we talk for a moment about about the punishment, which is lachen lo taviu et el haaretz? You because you did this, and the way that the text phrases yan lohemantem be, because you did not trust in me, did not believe me, because you displayed this. You know, God said, "Speak to the rock," and you hit the rock. For that reason alone, I mean. 
you you don't get to you don't get to experience the combination of all the the, the dreams here. You know, we we've talked a lot about how that works. That works literarily. That works as a as a motif. You know that that the the generation of the desert stays in the desert, and that the generation of conquest you know will go in with a new leader. That Moses in some way can't bring the people into the new land. Moses will always be the desert and the liberator, but not the the conqueror. Um, just the same way that David will be the unifier, but David won't build the build the temple of Solomon. And we could look at at you know various examples in history. There are certain presidents, for example, um, you know, FDR could could fight the war, could get people out of the depression, but you know, uh, could he have done other other things? Un, unknown. Um, Lincoln, you know, fought the Civil War. Could he have could he have been the 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 one to restore the union i mean probably yeah, the churchill's great... a really good churchill's a really good example because he was a great you know wartime prime minister and was then so, so turned out of office for the exactly yeah. so so um i want to ask the kind of wild card question which is was god just looking for a way like an excuse to punish moses or or is there something real going on in other words it's it it all works out in the end that that Moses is the desert leader and that Joshua is the conquering leader, but uh, you know is God looking for an excuse here? Because it, well, it's, that doesn't need an excuse. I mean, uh, <laughs> he wouldn't be much of a god if he did. There's okay. hundred. There's that whole hundred and twenty thing. But but um, I, I mean, I, I've I've said this a million times in the past, and uh, and I'll just repeat it now that the that the part of the the like narrative stumble of this story. Aaron does nothing in this story, does nothing at all. And God says, because you, Moses and Aaron, you've done, you've done a bad thing. It's like, <laughs> what about? What I do, I, what I do. <laughs> I, I, I think that the, I, the way I read this is um, that Moses and Aaron's punishments for the golden calf and breaking the tablets is displaced onto this episode. And the, the hitting of the rock strikes me as a wonderful um, parallel to Moses took out his anger on stone once before and is taking his anger out on stone now. And Aaron is obviously implicated in that previous story. So to me, the, the, the quote unquote justice of limiting them to desert leadership and, and not having them, which may be providentially wise and practical also is is associated with their major uh, leadership failings from before, and maybe done it kind of between the lines. But but there's also you know there's another thing that people say that commentators say through the centuries that Moses when he yells at the people, he just shimu na hamorim, you you terrible rebels, yeah minasela. Will we bring you out water from from this rock? There's, there's two problems with that. One is, is the cruelty or the or the rage that he shows towards the people considered to be inappropriate. And then he says, shall we bring forth water? Well, ho, 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 who are you, Mr. You know, if, if there's a miracle, it's not you. Don't don't be claiming credit for God's miracles. So there are all these other things that are also like in the in the uh, universe of Bible commentary. Um, those those two, Herman, you know, those two little homilies come up. Let's move to to the other death in the in the parsha, 
um, and that is uh, Aaron. They go, they move from Kadesh and they go to Horhahar, and it's at Horhahar where God says, Yasef Aaron Elamav, such a, a very, very lovely phrase. May Aaron, Aaron will now be gathered to his people. He's not going to go into the land. Um, take him at Elazar Bano, Va'al Otam Horhahar, and take him up to the mountain. Take off his clothes. And that's what will happen there. You will take off his his uh, priestly vestments, I guess, and then put them on Elazar as a kind of transition or coronation, uh, as if you will, except for the fact that priests don't get coronated, they get clothed. And that's where he's going to die. It's, it's, it's a remarkable it's a remarkable scene and, and the Bible is characteristically spare in the details, certainly the emotional details. Moses has got to do this himself. It's Moses standing with his older brother and his nephew and, and Moses has to, again, push down whatever emotion that he has and, and move as the, the, the transitional figure here. He's, he's the one that is orchestrating the transition uh, from Aaron to Elazar. Um, and and it's, it's, it's very spare. Go ahead, Barry. So here I think it, it's worth considering a similar problem with monarchy, right? When the monarch dies, he or she is succeeded by the next in line. And suddenly they are thrust into this position of responsibility and whatever mourning they're going to do is going to be private, right? They, we take a week off when someone dies um, in order to reconstruct the world without our, uh, our loved one. But in monarchies, you don't get that because as soon as the monarch dies, you ascend the throne. And so we have something similar here that the transition has to be seamless. And, you know, we know from uh, Sefer Vayikra that Kohanim are not allowed to mourn um, for their relatives or the high Kohen, the high priest, certainly. And so we have a remarkable absence of death ritual. There's no burial. Um, we're left with this image. I assume that Aaron must be naked and what do they do with the body? And and in fact, you go back to one of the details, which is that the 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 taking off of the clothes and the putting on of the clothes happens while Aaron is still alive. In other words, unlike the monarchy where the, where there's death, there's, there's um, you know the transition happens while he's still alive. I mean, we have a you know an instance in the Catholic Church where where you know Benedict resigned and a new and a new pope was uh, elected. Uh, that's unusual. That was very, very unusual. It might, yeah. it might actually become more common, but, but um, you know, because usually, you know, that it's also a quote monarchical system. Um, well, you know, um, the uh, just a, a, a another ritual thing. Stephen Breyer swore in Katanji Brown Jackson. Okay, um, for, from the Supreme Court, he stepped aside. And some people may wish may have wished that Ruth Bader Ginsburg stepped aside before before uh, she passed away. But um, there you had a case of somebody who was he was you know he was pochette the bigadim he was he was so to speak removed the vestments because the vestments are the office and the you know we're talking about <laughs> Moses's 
emotions must have been very, very high and intense. Aaron and Elazar's emotional investment must have been, you know, just through the roof on this as he is. I mean, I guess we, Tar doesn't tell us what, what anybody's feeling, but I think if we, if we can, you know, read with a, a poetic ear, we can maybe see a little bit of, um, you know, uh, acceptance or or equanimity in Aaron. He's had this very full life. Um, if if he is in fact three years older than Moses was he supposed to be, and Moses is about to die at 120, he, he's he's crossed the 120 boundary, or he's you know yeah. pushing right at it, and he's done what he's done. It's been tremendous, and he takes off the turban and puts it on his child. Beloved figure, they mourn him 30 days. It's it's really remarkable. I don't want to end on that note because we do have a other a couple of points here in the parsha that the the diplomacy, the failures of diplomacy with Sichon and Edom, who are distant relatives of B'nai Israel. Uh and and uh Jeremy, you, you said something about Edom when 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 Moses dispatches a, a, a delegation to Edom, uh, he says, and this just happens before uh, the death of Aaron, it says, Ko amar achicha Yisrael. This is what Israel says to Edom. Thus says your brother Israel. And, and you know, what is the relationship between Edom, the descendants of Esau, and Israel? And are they some? Are they pleased with this delegation? This is in chapter uh, twenty, verse fourteen, right? And uh, how do they respond? There's, there's a, there's a, what I, what I proposed, or I read it somewhere. I don't remember where I read it. I wish I could tell you who who, who said this, but it's, it's a fine comment. You know, Jacob and Esau are brothers. Jacob steals Esau's blessing. Jacob is portrayed as having this great, you know, he gets the father's blessing and he comes with the voice, which the rabbis associate as the successfulness of prayer. Um, and then Asaph, who is, who is cheated, you know, in this great scene back in Parsha Toldot, he's weeping and he says, you know, do you have only one? Hello, at Santa Libracha, have you, haven't you, don't you have, haven't you saved any blessing for me? Havracha Achat, do you have only one blessing? And so, Isaac gives him a blessing and says, Al yeah. you will be a successful guy, but you're going to have to live by your sword. Okay, Jacob has has more abundance and wealth, and you're going to live by your sword. So now, all these years later, um, Moses shows up, sends a message to Edom, the descendants of Esau, and says, you know, your brother Jacob came, and let me tell you what's happened to us. We went down to Egypt, and we prayed, and we got saved by God, and so things have been great, you know, we struggled, but but that that blessing has been fulfilled. And Asa or Edom says, watch out lest I come uh, out against you with the sword. And the person, wh whoever wrote that thing that I said, 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 this is a masterful, just on a literary level, masterful recapitulation of that earlier scene. One blessed with the word, one blessed with the sword, then all these years later, the Israelites come to that land of Edom and say, oh, can we please be brothers now? And and Edom, the descendants of Esau, go, yeah, well, watch out for my sword. So you have a real great, like the tension is really powerful. It's really stunning, you know, and, and the fact is that, that Edom becomes a people. 
you know, Edom is, in, is portrayed in, um, at least Esau is portrayed as a gang leader, but by the end of the Esau chronicles in, in Genesis and in Breshit, Esau actually, you know, becomes a family man and, and inhabits uh, the hill country and sets up a nation. And so, you know, the man's got, got his honor and the, the, the Edomites, they also have their honor. And this has been, uh, I think a very, very, it's a, it's a complicated Parsha. It takes us into lots of different places like the Paraduma, uh, the red cow, the breast colored cow, the death of Mary, the death of Aaron, the, the, um, the fight over the water, the rebelliousness of the people and Moses. Moses is now at the end of this Parsha, the solitary leader, no brother, no sister. He's he alone. And, and perhaps, I mean, it's, we are setting up for, for other, you know, other stories that are going to happen in the book of Amidbar, but Moses is going to have his greatest moment yet, I think. And with that, we want to, Say Shabbat Shalom to our listeners, our growing audience. We thank you so much for joining us, for being part of our Parsha Talks. Thank you for your comments when you comment on Barry's Facebook page and wherever else you want to send your comments. Wishing Barry this Nisiyah Tova and everybody at Camp Refuah Shlema. And we'll see you next week on the next edition of Parsha Talk. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. מרגישים קיץ באוויר, כבר עשרים שנה. מרגישים קיץ באוויר, כל רמה. כל רמה מאה ושתיים שלוש, מרגישים קיץ באוויר. שידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברצ'רס. אנחנו כל רמה מאה ושתיים נקודה שלוש FM